Well, good morning, all souls. Uh, my name is Stephen. I have the privilege of leading the staff and session of this place. And I'll add my welcome to Mike's if you're joining us for the first or second time. We are so glad that you're here. We are kicking off a new series this morning based on the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah called Hope Amid the Ruins. And in a sense, this uh, series has come about in response to some of the prophetic voices that uh, have heard over the summer in conversation with friends uh, three or four times. The book of Nehemiah has come up among my, my pastor colleagues. Uh, Latasha Morrison mentioned it in her chapter on lament in Be the Bridge. And it's one of those stories of God's involvement throughout history that just simply resonated with a lot of people throughout the year. Ezra and Nehemiah essentially tell the story of how God transformed a shattered community into hopeful rebuilders of their culture. And I think after the wild week that we have had, um, we think you know, that seems more necessary now than, than ever before. COVID has exaggerated and exposed some of the breakdowns in the extreme inequities and fault lines in our world and most certainly in the church. And while there are plenty of unknowns about the future, about the months ahead, we want to start thinking and praying about what it looks like to start the process of rebuilding and how God is going to do the work of renovation both internally and externally how we can work with God to begin to excavate hope. The name Nehemiah actually means the Lord comforts. But we start out the story with a shot of reality because in order to receive comfort, Nehemiah first has to learn how to mourn all that has been lost. The action of the story picks up at a time in Israel's history after the nation has been toppled by Assyrians in the north and Babylonians in the south. South. Sorry, I sound Canadian. I'm watching too many Peter McKinnon videos or something, I guess. Anyway, the city is in ruins. Nehemiah has received a report of those who have defied all kinds of odds to venture back. And what he hears based on that report, breaks his heart. But it also fires up his imagination and his longing. And with that, I want to invite you to grab your Bible and open it up to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Friends, listen carefully. The grass withers and the flower falls, but what you're about to read and hear endures forever. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, that's the capital of Babylon, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. 
For some days I mourned and fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are far at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, Almighty God, we ask that you would come upon us in spirit and in truth, that in hearing your word, we may respond joyfully. We pray this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, if you've ever remodeled your home, you know that there are at least three stages. The, the first one is where you start to develop a vision of what the remodel is going to look like. That is really the fun part of the process. That's when you start you know, looking at Pinterest and hows and start getting all kinds of ideas about what this is going to look like. You start to dream big and, and let the vision kind of grow inside of you. And then the second stage is when you figure out how you're going to pay for it. And then you go back and you delete a bunch of those photos because you realize maybe you have dreamed a little bit too big. Third stage is when the construction actually begins and that part is where you realize you are in over your head and you have serious doubts in the middle of the demo about whether or not phase one was going to be worth it at all. Uh, at our first home in Richmond, Virginia, Jill and I, with some help from her dad, completely renovated our bathroom and our kitchen. And, you know, you always love your first house a little bit more, I think, because, you know, it's your first chance to really kind of make it your own space. And so we started, you know, knocking down walls. We took everything in the kitchen down to the studs and to the subfloor. And right around the time when reality hit us was when we realized that we were renovating our only bathroom. Four people in a home for a week without a bathroom poses some problems. We got to know our neighbors and the staff at the YMCA really well that week. 
Well, Nehemiah's story is about a renovation. The action picks up around 445 BC, and the city walls of Jerusalem are in ruins. Hundred years earlier, Babylonians had invaded the city. They tore down the walls, they burned the gates, they carried the young people away into captivity. And for about 70 years, Jerusalem lie in ruins. And Nehemiah is a descendant of those Jews who had been taken captive from Jerusalem. He had never seen Jerusalem, but what he did see was the emptiness of his people. And he knew that Jerusalem was more than just a symbol of national pride. No, it was the symbol of God's promise. Well, in time, Babylon fell itself to Persia. And Nehemiah finds himself working in the court of the Persian king where he learned that the walls of Jerusalem were still in rubble. And he begins to weep. And his tears turn into prayer. And his prayer led into a vision. And this vision was about doing something to restore all that had been lost. But the vision that God gives him is only ever sort of about restoring the walls of the city. What God has in mind is restoring the soul of the people. And I cannot help but think that after the kind of year that we have had, and, and granted we have not been captive, you know, carried into captivity by an invading army, but it has felt like exile from our community, and in the face of uncertain plans, everything's just kind of been upended. Some things have been put on pause, while other things that were barely on the radar are thrust into the forefront. And after the week that we've had, certainly seems like God needs to do some rebuilding, needs to supply some fresh vision. And that is what leads Nehemiah on this improbable project of leading the people back into the abandoned city in order to rebuild the walls. And there's all kinds of work that God is doing behind the scenes. And in a sense, that is always where we are. There's always something in our lives that needs to be made new. There's always something that needs to be renovated. Probably so many things that the vision starts to get a little cloudy. And so this morning, I just want to note by way of introduction that this story begins with a problem, a presenting issue, if you like. The people are in trouble and disgrace, is what the report that Nehemiah gets. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. This starts out as a story of disillusionment. How can they begin to understand what has happened to them? Has God sent us into exile, or is the God of the Babylonians stronger than our God? Maybe God has rejected us, but what about the promises that he gave to his people? What about the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? What is going on? Pete Hughes, who teaches at King's Cross in London, he talks about four phases that happen when a community is in crisis. And first there is the heroic phase. 
that's the, the part where there's all kinds of energy and activity. I mean, think about firefighters rushing into the Twin Towers on 9-11, or think about all the people. It seems like everybody who had a boat went down to New Orleans after Katrina. There's this sense of togetherness and selflessness and people just doing what needs to get done. There's this rush of adrenaline that comes with meeting the needs that are all too apparent. But eventually this heroic phase gives way to the honeymoon phase. And that's where people start to, you know, kind of band together to solve all the problems. There is this kind of intense showing of community. I mean, remember back to the start of COVID when everybody was posting up signs in their windows saying, you know, we're all in this together. And uh, there was all kinds of outpouring of support for the frontline workers and medical staff. People were doing all kinds of, you know, really cool free online concerts. There was this sense of, of community, of our common humanity, and the, the idea that if we just pull together, we can fix this, right? We can overcome. And in this honeymoon phase, uh, media interest is acute. Uh, there's all, you know, kind of a sense of optimism. It's all that anybody can talk about. The, the best of humanity is going to win right out. But you can't live in the honeymoon phase forever. And it's not about the will. It's about stamina. We, we lack the internal resources. They, they get depleted. Even, even people who seem to have oceans of reserves, they just, we, we can't sustain the pace. And we've been through it in these last 10 months. I mean, parents have been pushed to the edge. They have been forced to be parents and teachers and playmates 24-7. Wedding and funeral plans have had to flex. Uh, those, those moments of, of joy and grief alike have had to look really different. Thanksgiving and Christmas were without the usual sounds of the laughter of family and friends for most of us. And healthcare workers who have been at it for 10 months solid with no reprieve, in many places without adequate tools, others have lost their jobs and have been plunged into economic hardship, and, and then the deep wounds of racial injustice that have been exposed, compounded with the trauma, not the least of which was the sight of seeing Confederate flags marched into the Capitol building this last week by people who seemingly could do so without without any sense of consequence. People have experienced extreme social isolation, stress, and anxiety, which has prompted talk of a, another pandemic of mental health on the way. And all that's taken place while our normal routines and the normal ways that we cope and find joy and energy in life have been totally disrupted. All that is to say that the honeymoon doesn't last forever, right? And that's when the disillusionment phase sets in. And we wonder, am I, am I being a good parent? A good, a good son, a good daughter, a good friend? Do I know where I belong? Why is this even happening? Who's to blame for it after all? 
I don't have what it takes. I think most of us recognize on some sort of an intuitive level, uh, you know, you've either hit the disillusionment phase or you've already been through there and by God's grace are moving through it. Uh, And if you're struggling, just know that you're not alone. We are like Nehemiah. There's a lot to weep over. And if you've not hit that phase yet, uh, just know that it's coming. And if you're afraid that, you know, you you don't want to confront your emotions and so you you don't want to get there, there's still time to sign up for emotionally healthy spirituality. But I want to say to you that while this can feel overwhelming, there's actually a lot of grace in this phase. Because disillusionment is an emotional signal from our body that our hope was misplaced. Disillusionment can be a gift because it is a sign that what you have been living under was in fact an illusion and that God is going to be found somewhere else. And so when you feel that, that, that nagging sense of disillusionment creep in, it is a signal not that God is not there in the midst of my pain, where was God is maybe not the right question, but rather what kind of illusion was I under and where do I need to move to know where God is? What do I need to let go of in order to receive what it is that God longs to give? I think the pain and the grief, they come sometimes as a severe form of mercy because it's only in that place where we can where we are letting go, when we are, we are at the bottom, where we can let go and God can begin to excavate the ego out of us and we can begin to find a foundation in which God will build hope again. There's something about realizing that I can't do this on my own. I, I don't have what it takes. I can't muster the energy. I'm limited. I can't fix it. For God to say, I know. I'm here. And I think if these last 10 months have shown us anything, it's that we cannot fix things on our own. And that's where we find Nehemiah, weeping over the wreckage. And in the midst of that weeping, he begins to pray. And he brings to God his his own pain, his own guilt, and that of his family, that of his nation. And through prayer, that problem starts to get refined, and it begins to take the shape of a God-breathed vision. And through prayer, and, and, and through petition to God, that vision matures to the point to where his intention is steeled into resolve. For Nehemiah, the work of rebuilding begins and ends with prayer this image of the city in in ruins it it began to eat at Nehemiah to the point to where he knew that he had to do something about it 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 wasn't as though he 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 started praying and he thought well you know somebody really ought to do something about that it is awful shame what happened no it it began to 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 take hold of his imagination to the point to where he couldn't shake it And throughout all of that, God was in the process of conjuring up a vision within him. 
And I think this is the part that I want to stick on for just a minute because what does Nehemiah do when he comes to that place of disillusionment? Well, at least in the first chapter, all he does is he brings it to God. He fasts. He prays. Day and night. He brings his concern to God and he leaves it there. And that's it. There's no three-point plan. He doesn't emerge from this prayer with a massive call to action. No, the the chapter ends with this really strange aside. I was a cupbearer to the king, which I think is the Bible's way of saying, like, well, what else was he going to do? He's not even middle management. Now, I mean, it's true that the cupbearer is a trusted role. Uh, Given the risk, you know, it was the kind of job where you could work a nice angle in the king's court. Uh, He's not a a governor or a general. He doesn't lead a team or anything like that. His job is literally to make sure that the king's food is not poisoned. And so if you think that you have a, a bad job, you know, like consider that like a good day at work for him is one in which he doesn't die. Right, so just you know, kind of raises the bar a, a little bit there. Uh, there's not a lot of role ambiguity in a job like that, which is a good thing. But I, I think that this, I think that this note is in there in the Bible to, to let us know that you know he's not necessarily a born leader, at least not in the way that we so often tend to think about it. He's not in a place where he's gonna you know. Summon the troops to force an outcome. He's, he, he's not even in a place where he can pitch this idea to his fellow countrymen who have clout, who have the ability to kind of make things happen. But neither does he allow himself to get lulled into the comfort of this position that he has. He doesn't allow that to kind of numb him from the concern, from the from what's going on around him. And he doesn't allow the daily grind of his responsibilities to distract him from the problem that has gripped his heart. Now, Nehemiah chooses the third and most difficult option. He chooses to wait. And I think that's part of the story where we don't like that. Um, We tend to think of waiting time as wasted time. We, we don't really want a gap between problem identification and execution. Uh, finding a solution is the key. That's kind of how we're wired. But somehow between the gap of is and ought, God is at work making the conditions right. This is a story about God's action. And sometimes blazing ahead with the work of rebuilding isn't the best thing to do. And at least for Nehemiah, we start to see some parallel things begin to happen. First, time allows this vision to mature. His vision is about a preferred future. And this vision is always set against the background of what is. It's against the background of a present that is really hard to change. But this vision, it needs time to mature so it can start to withstand the pressures and the cynicism of the status quo. But secondly, waiting allows time for him to mature. 
The last year has been the season of life in which we see things in the broader culture that clearly need to change. There are a lot of things that are not in step with the kingdom. And we know that we have to be different. But seeing what needs to change is a very different thing from asking the all-too-important question, how do I need to change in order to live into this new reality? What kind of change does God need to do in me and in the community that I am a part of, the community of Jesus followers that I am with, in order to live into the vision of the kingdom that he wants to bring about? How are we going to find the strength to lean in? While back, Andy Stanley wrote a book called Visioneering, and, and in that book he calls back this scene in The Empire Strikes Back, which, for the record, is the best Star Wars movie. Can the people of God agree? Uh, okay. Well, there's this scene in which Luke wants to go to rescue his friends, uh, and it's before he has finished all of his Jedi training. And Yoda and the disembodied spirit of Obi-Wan Kenobi, they plead with him. They say, no, Luke, you, you've got to finish your, your training but if you remember, during his training, he has this vision. He sees a time when his buddies, Luke and, and uh, uh, sorry, Han and Leia and Chewbacca, are in trouble. And he sees this, this space in which their lives are in danger. And he says, I can't get the vision out of my head. They're my friends. I've got to help them. And so Yoda issues this dire warning. If you leave now, help them, you could but you'll also destroy all for which they have fought and suffered. In other words, he's telling him, you're just, you're not ready. But Luke goes ahead and he, he, he barrels ahead. He is so locked in on what could be and what should be that he just feels compelled to leave immediately. And, and what's the result? He gets a sweet robot hand. But the point is, he, he wasn't the kind of person he needed to be in order to bring about the, the, the fullness of the vision that he had. He needed to be refined. His life needed to be renovated. The Bible is full of stories of people who receive a vision from God, who, who, who are promised all kinds of things, but they need to move through a, a series of, of, of pain and disillusionment and surrender in order to become the kind of person in whom this promise from God will take root. Abraham and Sarah are promised a son, but years go by where they are refined so that they can receive the promise. Joseph has this dream that God is going to use him mightily. But then he gets sold into slavery and imprisonment before God allows him to become the kind of person who will lead his nation. David is anointed king. But there are all kinds of years of waiting and hiding and running that goes by before he takes the throne. And by the time that he goes through all that, throughout all of those stages, God is in the process of, of refinement so that when he takes the crown, he is a fundamentally different person than when he was anointed. On and on the story of the Bible goes. Sometimes we have to wait for the vision to mature. 
And sometimes the vision has to mature us. Sometimes what we see is only a piece of the puzzle that God is laying out before us. And so Nehemiah does not just decide to go and do something about Jerusalem's walls. He receives a vision that is crafted and refined through prayer. And so as a community, we need to pray our renovation. If we are going to become hopeful rebuilders, we're going to need God to meet us past the disillusionment. We're going to need him to excavate hope. Prayer is the still place of life where all of the churning stops, where we can commune with God. It's the central place where everything finds its connection. It's the quiet place where we speak to God, but we also listen. It means you can't pray and watch TV. You can't pray and negotiate a business deal. You can't pray and argue with somebody else. And now you can throw one-liners up to heaven in the midst of all the craziness, but serious prayer is when we enter into sustained, quiet communion with God. I love how Craig Barnes puts it. He says that just as a house has to have walls, your soul needs walls. Prayer is the wall that forms the creative space where you encounter God. Without prayer, your soul will soon disappear into the meanness and storms of life. It's not only our homes that periodically need to make space for rebuilding and renovation, but so does every life, so do communities. Maybe the wreckage that you're weeping over can be found in your relationships and your marriage and the way you lead your family and your career or your finances. And maybe also the way that we need to change as a community of Jesus is to think less about what it takes to pursue the American dream so that we can find a God who has a dream for the whole world. And maybe you and maybe we have been deferring maintenance in these places for far too long. Now it's time to allow God to draw up some blueprints for a new way of life. It's only after we've gone through that hard work of disillusionment that God can refine our prayer into resolve. And then we'll be ready for that fourth phase, which is reconstruction. Where we begin to discover hope, not in a particular outcome, but that God is with us and is more committed to the rebuilding process than we will ever be. And if you launch through making into changes, you're probably going to go through all of the stages. First, you're going to get a a vision for how you think life should look. You'll feel the rush of energy and you won't worry about the costs. Pretty soon you're going to hit a setback and you're going to realize that you don't have the resources in yourself. And after the pain and loss, you'll partner with God to start the work of rebuilding. But hear me in this, it all begins and ends with prayer. If it doesn't begin and end with prayer, then you're not allowing God to renovate your life, you're just rearranging the furniture. And so this week, I want to invite you to pray. 
to change life from the inside out, you're going to have to pray all the way through. We have to begin with prayer, with weeping over the wreckage, or we're never going to find the vision for something new. You, you have to pray about the cost, or you're always going to find reasons for the cost being too high. You have to pray through the messy work of renovation, or you're going to lose heart when God promises to bring hope amid the ruins. So I invite you this week to pray for our nation, for our world, for our church, for you. For what God longs to do in all of those spaces. Uh, for some time we have been doing a midweek prayer online. Mike has been hosting that. Uh, and then a team of folks over uh, the three months that Mike was on sabbatical. It takes place on Instagram on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And this week he's going to invite you to join him outdoors, to pray together. You can also join online to just simply come together and pray about the work that God is doing. At some point we're going to gather together again as a community in, in somewhat of a normal space. And all that will be necessary if we're going to become the kind of people who are capable of doing the work, of leaning into the vision that God has for us. But I think for me, some of the deeper questions are, who are we going to be when we return from exile? What is the vision that God is going to craft out of the rubble? But I do know this, prayer is the only way to stay in communion with God, with the one who is the architect of your life. And he has a dream and a vision far greater than anything you can dare imagine. Amen. And now, friends, as we come to the table that Christ has set, we come as guests invited. We come as guests of the kingdom where we are citizens of an eternal city. And so as we come, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Now lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And after he had given thanks, he broke the bread. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. And so it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we are proclaiming his dying until he comes again. And so, friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. As we come, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Come, the table is set. Amen.